Right, so now it's time to welcome a man who's got a bit of a sore ankle at the moment, so he's not with me tonight, but uh, he's joining us via technology, and uh, Hayden Donnell, a very good evening. Good evening to you, Mark. What has happened to you, old son? You've, you, you've damaged your ankle. I've exploded my ankle. It's severely distorted right now. What happened is that I'm 37 year, years old and still trying to play basketball, and I jumped. <laughs> And I came down on someone's foot, and I don't know. It, it's not a pretty sight. It's no, not it a is. pretty sight. It's a lesson to me that I need to stop trying to jump. And actually, maybe that's a moot point. I probably won't be able to after this. <laughs> well, that's probably the, the, the guess. Although I've had an expert on tonight saying exercise is so very important. So good on you for keeping it going at the ripe old age of 37. Um, yeah, it's, good luck it's to pretty you. tough for me. I don't know if you can relate to. <laughs> no, I can't anymore. Being this old, way, but I, way beyond yeah, that, son. I'm starting to slow down. Yeah. <laughs> now you wanted to start with the big story of the week, which uh, is an extremely tragic story, isn't it? The Loafers Lodge fire. So, what did you think of the the media coverage? Yeah, I'll start at the beginning with this one. Just the breaking news coverage. That was um, pretty impressive work by some news organisations. They sent reporters scrambling to the, to the scene to gather these basic facts and in some cases I think shed new light on the situation, sometimes, sometimes before authorities had even learned some of the facts that they were reporting. So this was kind of clearly a pretty chaotic news environment with a lot of claims being aired about what took place and lots of stuff being said on social media and reporters clearly had a tough job discerning first what to put to air and then what was true and what wasn't. So just for example, this is Morning Report producer Denise Garland talking to Loafers Lodge resident Chris Fincham about the moment he evacuated the building. I heard a voice coming down the passageway saying, evacuate, evacuate, the place is on fire. And I didn't think much of it because the fire alarms would go off two or three times a week and we'd just ignore it. But then when I heard this guy or this person screaming, there's a fire, evacuate, evacuate. I just, I sat there for about five minutes and then I put my shoes on, <laughs> I got my wallet together and I thought, well, maybe I should leave, yeah. <laughs> basically. So the fire alarms didn't sound at all? No. Now, I, I'm not meaning to uh, cast aspersions at Denise Garland at all. She's a bit of a star of the show with the media coverage. I think she was working an overnight shift at uh, Morning Report, training up a new producer. Producer, She was one of the first at the scene. She did an epic live cross to Morning Report at 6am. And that's a really compelling interview that she did. And the fact that the fire alarms seemingly hadn't gone off was news to Wellington Mayor Tori Fano, who seemed rattled after getting that information live on air. You may be aware we've interviewed a, a resident this morning who said they didn't hear an alarm. Oh, yeah, that's um, incredibly concerning um, and would be unacceptable if that's the case. Uh, but the police uh, will be doing a full investigation into this and I certainly look forward to seeing, well, not look forward to, sorry, I'm very keen to see the results of that to ensure that this doesn't happen again. Now, Fano was probably right to put off her response to that claim until it was confirmed by police investigators Uh, because Fincham's account has since been disputed, at least in part. Uh, So other residents have said that they did hear those fire alarms go off, but they backed what Fincham said about them often being 
ignored because they were often false alarms. So this is survivor Simon Hanafi talking to the Herald. Fire alarm went off. They often do. Usually a false alarm. It went off at 10.30. I left my room. I didn't leave the building. I just went on the balcony and had a cigarette. Sure enough, the alarm turned off two minutes later. I doubt that many people even left the building. It's happened so many times where it's either a cooking thing or somebody smoking in the room or something. So obviously this was a very fluid uh, news environment and that added complication of reporting as it was an ongoing emergency operation, really. So, Hayden, do you reckon our news organisations, I guess, navigated those challenges well? So I don't mean this is as a criticism or anything, but that just does illustrate some of the challenges that are involved here. You've got a chaotic situation, lots of different people seeing and hearing different things, and I think it's a situation where the broad breadth of the coverage probably has to be considered rather than whether everything broadcast in the midst, in the midst of this unfolding emergency was 100% accurate and all the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed. So obviously here the voices of survivors, they should be heard and they shouldn't be fact-checked in the moment like they're a politician announcing a policy or something. They've just escaped a burning building. So in general, I think, News organisations did a good job of balancing those editorial calls, interviewing people with first-hand perspectives on this high-stress unfolding situation, and then making sure that information was cross-checked with both authorities and other witnesses like Simon Hanafi that you just heard. So that job of discerning fact from fiction and speculation from real analysis continued uh, for journalists and presenters this morning and today and probably across the rest of the week. And uh, this morning, some of the unproven assertions being broadcast were a little bit less defensible. So this is uh, Newstalk ZB Wellington host Nick Mills taking calls from property owners on the blaze. And one of them received a quick rebuke from Mills after making this claim. You can regulate it by one of those pressure hinges, so if you let it go, it automatically closes. I suspect in this property, people have shoved rubbish bins in it to keep it open. So yeah, I don't want to. I'm not going to get into any speculation of what hap- has or hasn't happened there, Maori, because we don't know, and that's for other people, not for us to discuss. Now, good on Mills for waiting on an actual investigation there, not speculating on what took place. I mean, we haven't even got a confirmed death toll from this tragedy, let alone sort of granular detail on exactly what took place during the fire and what allowed it to spread. So uh, that's a good editorial call by Mills. Uh, Obviously, the information that we do have this afternoon is that police are treating the fire as arson and they've launched a homicide investigation. Mm. There are some suspects when it comes to the factors that contribute to the tragedy. I mean, the issue they're discussing, whether the building and, in fact, our building standards more generally are fit for purpose, um, sprinklers, etc. What's the story with sprinklers? It seems a bit vague, the whole thing. It's clearly a big topic right now, though. Have other news organisations shed light on that issue at all? Yeah, this is where I think the media's been really good, just getting the the bigger picture, the larger context, I guess, kind of background radiation that went, uh, that this fire exists in. And, and the outlets that have been particularly good on this, I think, have been mostly print and online digital media. So Tess McClure at The Garden, ga- at The Garden? <laughs> Tess McClure at The Guardian, I think she wrote a particularly illuminating piece about how 
this tragedy interplays with our housing crisis and our building code, as you say, sprinklers. So noting that older residences like uh, Loafers Lodge aren't required to retrofit sprinklers. But I, I think she also expounds really well on how our spiraling property prices and our growing emergency housing waitlist, or I mean, our large emergency housing waitlist, I think it has been going down recently, but they make places like Loafers Lodge the only affordable option for a lot of low income workers, people that are struggling. And Bernard Hickey made a similar point on his Substack, uh, the Kaka. He said that the fire exposed the extent of Aotearoa's housing and poverty crises just days before. As you just heard from Cameron Bagri, uh, Labour will un unveil a no-frills bread and, bread and butter budget mm -hmm. aimed at, uh, as Hickey says, keeping interest rates low and asset values high. Uh, no razzle-dazzle there. No, and there are also questions about whether firefighters, you know, they did some heroic work, but they, were they properly equipped for uh, this emergency? Yeah, and this is the other part of it. And uh, so not just the social context, but the, the, the whether our firefighters, our emergency services are ready for this kind of thing. And at RNZ, Phil Pennington looked at whether under-resourcing in our fire service might have made this fire more deadly. He said that firefighters only have access to one truck or only had access to one truck with a ladder long enough to rescue people from the top floor of Loafers Lodge because a second truck with a 32 meter long ladder was out of service and hadn't been fixed yet. This is an ongoing problem. Firefighters had to use a truck with a shorter ladder that couldn't reach those top floors. And uh, as you can hear Pennington telling Corin Dan here, not having the right equipment present took at all. So they did a workaround and of course they've been praised for doing a fantastic job um, they themselves say you know they gave so much to that job but in the, at the same time a senior officer I talked to last night who was not there but who has talked to those who, was, who were they expressed real concern particularly about a couple of young junior firefighters who were there who were really cut up about um, feeling that they didn't do enough now, it's worth noting, Phil Pennington has been on this case for some time. It's not something that he just got to now. He covered New Zealand's lack of large ladder trucks. They're called aerials and firefighter parlance, I guess, in 2021. And that was following a report into the Sky City Convention Centre fire. And that report highlighted the country's lack of preparedness uh, for these kinds of fires in multi-storey buildings. And it said, uh, it could affect firefighters' ability to deal with these kinds of blazes. And look, those chickens may have come home to roost here. That may have affected the response here with potentially tragic outcomes. That's something that we will see later on. There will be, of course, plenty more reporting to come on this along with official investigations. But I did want to acknowledge some of the good work that's already been done on putting this immediate, really visceral uh, human tragedy into a wider context. It's very scary, isn't it? When you even look around the Auckland skyline and see how many high-rise apartment blocks there are now that seem to have just sprung up in the last uh, decade or so. And it's a certain worry, isn't it, whether we're prepared if something like that happens. But let's move on yeah, to... Yeah, uh, these are 32-metre mm -hmm. ladders. I think uh, the 2021 report really highlighted that, that as we do get more dense cities as more multi-story buildings are going up we're going to need these trucks mm. and they're often out of commission when they're 
uh, in need of repair. So some praise incoming. You wanted to give a couple of publications some kudos for fact-checking questionable claims from politicians. Yes, uh, more praise incoming. First off, the student magazine Salient uh, and its reporter Ethan Manera. I just want to credit them for fact-checking something National's housing spokesperson Chris Bishop said on Twitter, and that might not seem that important at face value, but uh, for context, National recently announced it wants to bring back no-cause rental evictions or uh, the right of landlords to end a tenancy for any or no reason at all. Just as a, as a quick side note, I know I, I saw that the UK Conservative Party is actually ending no-cause evictions. Uh, I think that was announced tonight. So this is an interesting fact. I think the National Party is probably to the right of the Conservative Party in the UK on that one. But uh, obviously their proposal hasn't been popular with everyone, particularly advocates for renters' rights. And Bishop received a lot of criticism on social media. And somewhere in amongst all of that unfolding debate, particularly on Twitter, someone questioned whether any current national MPs are renting. And Bishop replied in the affirmative. He said he was. He was then asked whether he was renting off himself, a family member, or a trust or company he had an interest in. And he replied, no on all counts. Salient has run the ruler over that denial, I, I understand. Yeah, it has. And it found that Bishop is actually renting off his in-laws while he waits for a new house to be built in Days Bay. And look, this was actually kind of public knowledge. I looked it up and it was something that was mentioned a few years ago uh, in a kind of a soft focus feature for the New Zealand Herald. So how did he explain that away or has he not done so? Well... <laughs> I'm not sure he's explained it well. He certainly hasn't taken the easy way out, shall we say that? This is a situation where he might have said, look, ah, you got me. I, I didn't read the full question correctly. There was a lot of sort of different parts of that question or something, you know, maybe just conceding the point that, yes, I am renting off family. Instead, he took another road, immediately apparently disowning his in-laws as family, telling Salient that's not my family and explaining that he's only related to them by marriage. <laughs> look, I mean, who knew it was that easy Mark, I mean, of of course, this does open up a lot of questions in terms of what does constitute family. I guess by that same logic, is his wife also not family, seeing as she's only related to him by marriage? I mean, how deep does this rabbit hole go? Do we really have to start reassessing things here? Uh, Salient didn't accept his definition. It has to be said they accused Bishop of fibbing in its headline, and the story has been... uh, covered by other media, including News Talk ZB, which I think actually misrepresented what Bishop said in its headline. It said that he had admitted he was renting off his in-laws after saying he wasn't renting off his parents. That wasn't what he said. <laughs> he didn't say he was renting off his... He didn't, say, he didn't deny that he was renting off his parents. He said he wasn't renting off his family, and that's obviously a broader term than you'd ex- that you'd expect would include your in-laws. So I think Salient's got one over News Talk ZB and the accuracy stakes there. Is it is it actually important, though? On a policy level, probably not. It's a Twitter dispute, and that's Bishop's retort. He, he told Newstalk ZB this was a ridiculous beat-up, said Salient should be focusing on how rents have risen under Labour. Look, fair enough, that is the wider context. Uh, but I think his context matters as well, because National has been trying to defend a policy which many people have criticised as punitive and detrimental to renters' well-being, and Bishop has kind of repeatedly tried to defend the policy as being pro-renter and himself as pro-renter. So he's earlier said that a group working with homeless people actually 
advised him to bring back no-cause evictions. FYI, that was actually fact-checked by a very promising up-and-coming reporter called Hayden Donnell, uh, and you can check that out at the spin-off. Uh, but, you know, he's also, here he's saying he's a renter, and, you know, that first-hand experience of the rental market is, again, meant to lend credibility to his arguments. You've got first-hand experience, of course, that you won't be uh, doing anything detrimental to Renters. So in that context, it's worth pointing out that his experience of renting is different to the norm, particularly if he's not being altogether upfront about his circumstances. And look, by the way, Bishop's new property on Days Bay was listed in the Pecuniary Interest Register, which was released yesterday. So he is officially a homeowner, even if he's temporarily holed up with his in-laws, who, of course, are not his family. I have heard that that Hayden Donnell's quite good. He's got a bit of potential there anyway. Oh, I've heard really good things about him. You've got to check that out. <laughs> now, you wanted to add another uh, journalistic commendation. Yeah, this one to Matthew Scott of Newsroom, and he did some legwork investigating Auckland Council's budget hole. If you'll remember about the budget hole, it was originally $295 million. Recently, that figure has gone up with Mayor Wayne Brown saying, uh, well, issuing a press release and doing some interviews saying it has ballooned to $375 million. And in that same press release, Brown also said Auckland would have to impose a 22.5% rate rise to pay for that shortfall. And that got picked up and run by some media pretty uncritically. So in a recent story, RNZ parroted Brown's figure uh, uncritically. Here's Catherine Ryan introducing an item on 9 to Noon. We return to our lead story now and the shortfall in Auckland Council's finances and what to do about it. The Council's budget shortfall for the next financial year is expected to reach $375 million, up from $295 million. Well, I'm guessing, obviously, young Matthew Scott has found that that figure isn't quite as solid as it sounds. Yeah, that's right. He actually dug into this stuff, which is a really important thing to do, and he found those figures to be questionable if not wholly fictitious so his headline is the mysterious case of the imaginary 22.5 percent rate rise and it does as as you'd expect from that headline it presents a pretty compelling rebuttal to the mayor's figure saying even uh using the council's own methods a 22.5 percent rate rise would earn 456 million dollars i think the figure is and that's obviously more than the highest figure given for the budget hole even by mm. wayne brown but also that budget hole figure overall is in question scott looked into the details of that alleged 375 million dollar budget hole and found it includes a one-off 50 million dollar storm related bill so the council's chief financial officer peter gudsell told scott that that bill won't be added to the council's ongoing operating shortfall meaning Basically, its actual budget deficit is $325 million. Well, still, it's a lot of money, isn't it? $325 I million. Wanna, I wouldn't want to owe $325 million, no. <laughs> so that uh, kind of number crunching, it's a, it's a bit less common in local government, I suppose, reporting um, you know, that coverage of central government would be right on to that sort of thing. Yeah, I think there probably is a bit more scrutiny there. And, I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm sure that central government politicians still manage to sneak some dodgy figures through the media but i'd say the the task is a bit easier in local government which is where the reporting is a lot more poorly resourced and it's more sparse and that could make it easier for hypothetically a politician with an agenda to use faulty or questionable numbers to support their case while counting on the media not to apply particularly rigorous scrutiny to their claims 
And look, that's certainly what the group A Better Budget for Auckland believes is happening in our biggest city. So as spokesperson India Logan Riley told Scott, the council's deficit projection is based on what she called uh, an inaccurate inflation predictions, underestimates of the airport performance and vague numbers and uh, accused Brown of using dodgy numbers to entice people into support, supporting unpopular cuts and asset sales. Now, without making a judgment one way or another on those claims, I think we can at least say from this latest episode that it's worthwhile for reporters to start running the ruler over some of the underlying assumptions in the council's budget hole figure, and indeed local government figures like this in general. Uh, but that budget hole figure, for the record, thanks to Matthew Scott, is uh, $325 million, not $375 million for now. Now, on the topic of money, Westpac put out a, a bold prediction on the official cash rate uh, recently. What did you think of that reporting? Yeah, that's right. If you missed it, Westpac revised its forecast. Bold prediction. Uh, says that OCR will peak at 6%, so that's more than other uh, organisations, and that fact has been reported by the New Zealand Herald and other media outlets. I don't have too much of an opinion on that. Westpac said that high immigration figures look set to drive up demand and increase inflation, forcing the Reserve Bank to raise rates higher. And look, that assertion on its own is worth a bit of sceptical analysis. But I'm just, I just, it just got me thinking, I'm more interested in the question of whether these sorts of forecasts are worth reporting at all, or at least reporting in this way. But they're sort of a kind of a stable of media reporting, aren't they? Um, bank economists giving their opinions. Are you suggesting that they're not not accurate or not newsworthy? Uh, I've got some complicated feelings about this, but I think my issue with them is more the former there, that they're not accurate. Uh, so that's something that's pretty well established. Shamabil Yakub has noted that the Reserve Bank's forecasts on interest rates are often wildly out of joint with reality. In fact, they're more often than not wrong on not just the extent, but the direction of interest rates. And so, for instance, in 2009, at the depths of the global financial crisis, actual interest rates were 5.6% lower than what the bank had been forecasting a year earlier. That's more than our entire OCR right now. I mean, uh, it's a, there's some pretty wild discrepancies between what the forecasts are and what the reality turns out to be. So another example, during the COVID crisis, economists forecast that house prices would drop between 10 and 20%. They actually rose 30% in one year. They said that unemployment was meant to hit up to 30%, uh, or at least, you know, some. Just, I think the forecast range between 11 and 30 percent. I mean, it, it's now been below four percent for seven quarters in a row. Now, this is kind of predictable, in a way. Studies have shown that economists are no better at forecasting recessions or economic booms than a layperson. I think in 1973, the Princeton University professor Bernard Malkiel claimed a blindfolded monkey throwing darts in a newspaper's financial pages could select a portfolio that would do just as well as one selected by experts. Now, uh, people actually tried to test that claim in a 10-year study that was published back in 2012. They actually found that he was wrong. A monkey throwing darts would have done better than the professional stock pickers. So, uh, <laughs> it's it's an it's an interesting one, just a randomised. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, there's been other studies on that monkey throwing darts thing as well, by the way. Uh, and they found they didn't find it was they weren't quite as damning. They found that someone that was moderately well read, sort of a New York Times reader, could have done as well as the expert. Yeah. I think uh, RNZ's veteran business journalist Giles Beckford puts it pretty well. He says that economists exist to make 
astrologers look good. It's kind of alarming, isn't it, if the Reserve Bank's getting those interest rate forecasts uh, wildly out of joint? Oh, you, you'd be very alarmed to see <laughs> the history of that one, uh, Mark. Yeah. The retort, of course, is any forecast is better than just nothing. Or is it? Um, they're not meant to be an exact science, but people need some idea of the general direction of the economy. Yeah, and that's the argument you'll see from economists, business journalists, that kind of thing. And they say, fair enough, really. They say these forecasts are misunderstood by people who expect them to be exact to the you know first decimal point. And really, they're meant to be a rough guide, third decimal point. Uh, they're meant to be a rough guide to help people make more informed decisions when it comes to stuff like fixing or floating their mortgage, investing in a business, that kind of thing. And people need something to go on when they're making decisions, even if it's not perfect. It's a bit like a weather forecast. The rain might not come in exactly the time that they say it will, but it's still useful to have. Uh, You know, there's something to that. uh, But if people have got the idea that these forecasts are an exact science, some of the responsibility for that has to lie with the journalists who report them without caveats. Uh, you know, we lap them up in the radio and TV shows that get the same economists on time after time without ever confronting them or adding a, adding a disclaimer on why they've been so badly wrong before, often just weeks earlier, maybe months earlier. Look, there's a case for some kind of accountability here on mm. wayward economist pr- predictions or at least that kind of disclaimer that I'm talking about. You know, putting one to ear, this might be useful, but it's probably not a good idea to treat it as gospel. Mm. And, of course, these predictions often come from uh, from bank economists, and, uh, well, I guess they've got skin in the game, really, haven't they? They're not exactly disinterested parties. When it comes to stuff like interest rates, oh. not exactly. I mean, and this is a, another point. I think there might be a bit of a failure to contend with the fact that these bank economists have a stake in this. And, look, Again, I'd add a caveat. I'm, not, I'm sure that these are their genuinely held opinions based on research. These are smart people. I don't want to in, impugn anyone's integrity, but all of us are shaped by our context. All of us are vulnerable to basic human bias. So what if a bank, for instance, hypothetically speaking, has just upped its amount of lending to businesses quite considerably and has a financial interest in interest rates not going higher? Would an economist's that bank be tempted to look for reasons why interest rates shouldn't rise. These interests aren't really accounted for or mentioned that much in the media stories platforming economists making their predictions. Well, I mean, that stands in contrast to some other areas of reporting, potential conflicts and biases in the political realm, for instance, are policed far more stringently and they're disclosed far more regularly. And maybe those same disclosures could be worthwhile when it comes to economics. Right now we've got about three and a half minutes to go Hayden uh, John Tamahiri gets the uh, yeah. exclusive with Mika Faitari. Yeah I'll, I'll be brief but yeah John Tamahiri managed to snag this media exclusive with Mika Faitari on his uh, Radio Watia show tonight they spoke at 8pm they covered the reasons behind her defection Faitari repeated her line about you know having a feeling in a puku that she needed to come home to Tapati Māori uh, Tamahiri criticised the Pākehā pundits and what he called uh, his quote a few silly natives who'd implied she'd done something wrong by not giving them what they considered a proper excuse for her defection and he talked up the party's 1.7% poll bumps since she joined saying uh, you know it was all upside 
But how did John Tamahiri get this exclusive interview? I mean, far be it from me to guess at his journalistic process here, but it's possible he developed a familiarity with Faitari in his other role as the Tane Vice President of Te Pāti Māori, where he played, by all accounts, a vital part in convincing her to defect from Labour. So this is one of the presidents of Te Pāti Māori getting an exclusive with his party's own candidate. Yeah, you'd think it's a pretty easy one uh, to book in a way, and it's a pretty a bit of an unusual interview setup. I don't really think there's any other uh, presidents of parties that have a media platform to interview their own party's candidates, and it's worth noting that Rawiri Waititi was also interviewed on Tamahiri's show on March 30. But, and I mention that uh, because it's kind of not an isolated situation for Tamahiri. He's kind of got this unusual situation where he's continuing to book media roles even as he remains a central figure into Party Māori and he also recently appeared, I mentioned to you earlier, as a political panellist on News Hub Nation where his role as co-president or vice president of his political party wasn't disclosed and he was instead introduced as a former Labour Party cabinet minister. So really I suppose the issue is potential for bias, so the content um, openly slanted really towards his party, Te Party Māori. And I, I don't think that's the case, as far as I can tell. It was tonight, for sure. I mean, it was definitely putting the case with the Party Māori on Radio Atia. I don't think it really was on News Hub Nation. Uh, but there is a reason why party presidents don't generally get booked for these kinds of gigs. Obviously, they have a vested interest in promoting a particular political party, or at least not berating them if they've done something wrong. But even if that's not a factor, having this kind of platform establishes them as a you know trusted, ostensibly dispassionate political observer and that could definitely uh, be of a of a boon to Tamahiri when he's next appearing as a spokesperson for Te Pāti Māori and that's a role he's actually filled relatively regularly lately doing media interviews on stuff like the party's bottom lines and coalition negotiations. Look it's a it's a bit of an unusual situation I'll say that. I must uh, finish uh, Hayden with a message here um, I'm not Hayden's biggest fan but I thought Hayden did a pretty decent job tonight he has attended... <laughs> He has a tendency to sound whiny and righteous, but tonight he sounded quite affable and reasonable. Injury clearly <laughs> agrees with him. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you. I'll, I'll try and destroy my ankle before every, <laughs> well, every midweek media slot to please, please the detractors. That, well, our texter um, actually suggested that I should help. <laughs> <laughs> give oh, me a, do, do you have a, give me a good thrashing Stay before each program? <laughs> Hayden, thanks so much for that. Uh, Hayden did our <laughs> midweek media watch, and of course, uh, media watch back uh, just after nine on Sunday morning.